Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and on the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical progressive Christian lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. Uh, this week, I had the wonderful opportunity to sit down with the one and only Jennifer Knapp. If you've never heard of Jennifer Knapp, she is a musician and activist. She was probably one of the most popular contemporary Christian artists in the late 90s. She burst onto the scene with three amazing albums and then essentially disappeared from the space and didn't come back again till about 2009. And when she did, she revealed that she was gay and Obviously, within an evangelical world, that shifted a lot of people's perspectives of her. But since then, she's had three more amazing albums with her current one, Love Comes Back Around, out right now. In addition to her music, she is also an advocate for LGBTQ people of faith. And she founded an organization called Inside Out Faith, which we'll also talk about in our interview. So yeah, I'm really excited to present this interview to you. If you would like more information on what Jennifer Knapp is doing and where you can find her music, all of that is in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 102. That's irenacast.com slash 102. So without any further ado, let's get into our interview this week with Jennifer Knapp. I know they'll bury me before they hear the whole story. Even if they do, well, I know they won't hear to Chuck it up to a mistake Oh God forbid they give me grace Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on Irenicast. We really appreciate having you here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. You have had quite uh, quite the career, quite the life, I'm sure, uh, that at times maybe even feels like you've had two separate lives with the contrast of where you started in your music career and where you are now. But before we get into the probably the more public part of your life, I was just wondering, you know, where are you from? What was your um, upbringing like? Did you, were you raised in a church? Uh, what did that look like for you? In a traditional, like, evangelical sense, I wasn't raised in a church, but I wouldn't have I wouldn't have said that until I drank the proverbial Kool-Aid. Um, so let me explain that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Kansas, so it's um, the Midwest. It's, you know, traditionally kind of an American Christian environment. Dare I say that? I mean, everybody, you know, you had, it, it was something you didn't really question. You know, my grandmother went to church every Sunday. My grandfather was a deacon of the church and begrudgingly dragged his feet every Sunday to go along with her. And, you know, upon occasion as a kid, um, I was forced to get into pantyhose and a dress and patent leather shoes to go along with my grandparents. So, and you know, and then like for my, for my actual parents, like church wasn't part of their life, but this the notion of God was just something I think everybody around me kind of took for granted. I mean, there's no kind of you know, th there, there wasn't like this daily, you know, we have to pray at every meal we're going to raise our kids with a Bible study, but God was still part of the conversation. So I had familiarity with that growing up. And then as I, as I grew up and grew older and particularly around my late teenage years, and as I got into college and started to personally contemplate my own spiritual life, um, that was when I discovered, I guess, this, this kind of like, I don't know, it was like a hyperdrive <laughs> of, of spirituality, you know, where I became in contact with evangelicals who are like, you have to make a commitment to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. This has to be a radical transition. Um, and that's kind of where I start, you know, describing this kind of, you know, tongue in cheek as having drank the Kool-Aid. I did make a concerted effort. I did become a follower of Christ. This began to have an epiphanal type of meaning to me. Um, but in contrast to the way that I grew up, um, all of a sudden, the way that I grew up in this environment begins to be described as not having grown up in the church. So, you know, before I didn't, I wasn't something and now I am and or, and a legitimate version of that. And then, you you know, you fast forward many years ahead of theological questioning, really getting into this, trying to discover, you know, who whose God nature is, what this means for me, how I want to know God, can I know God, all of this stuff kind of comes to a head. 
I come out as a, a gay person inside of the midst of this, which seems to contravene, you know, traditional teachings, all this stuff. So it, it kind of moves forward in this really, and, you know, I have catapulted through, you know, 20 plus years of describing a spiritual experience. But today I would say, you know, yes, I'm a person of faith who has a traditional Christian um, language and process of viewing that. Um, but yeah, like that, that, that school of that old language for me of, did I grow up in the church? The answer would have been no. So then most of the people who ask that question are like, oh, but finally you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. It's, it's kind of that thing, but the journey encompasses all of that for me and how I grew up in the environment of which I've started to understand that culturally from where I grew up and where, I, you know, the places I've traveled to and experienced and other people along the way has been um, just as illuminating part of that process. So in some ways, I think you're right. I, I would describe, you know, their before and after kind of moments or mile markers that delineate, you know, what I did then, like before I was 18 and before I made a commitment to Christ. And then, you know, this next phase of, you know, what happened in between, you know, that and my coming out. And then it also has uh, career issues as well, because I, you know, performed as a musician, as a Christian musician, and now do that with a mile marker kind of between what I often call career 1.0 and career 2.0, <laughs> where um, I still think all of those elements are at play, like all of that spiritual journeying, all of that, all of my faith, all of my Christian understandings in a lot of ways are not firewalled or protected from one against the other. They're embedded in what I do, but somehow um, the way that I describe them and I've gone through those particular mile markers sometimes kind of helps tell you the zone that you're in now, but not necessarily, I would caution against saying that it's made anything, you know, bifurcated or disjointed. It's strangely, as, as the older I get and the more I look back at it, the more continuity I see, which is, hmm. is both comforting and, and, you know, from a theological perspective, perspective, you know, raises some questions to try and see how, how that all makes sense and fits in. And, it's part of the journey of discovery, and I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely uh, that definitely resonates with me, and I'm sure my co-host would say the same. Uh, that's kind of the catalyst for this podcast. What came out of that um, place of having this one mode of faith, and then being in another one, and going through that whole journey of, you know, at first rejecting that past, and then realizing it's a it's an important part of the whole journey that we're we're on right now, and how all those things kind of merge together as you get to a certain point. Yeah, I'm probably going to sound like a real uh, divinity school nerd, but I mean, <laughs> there's a there's a certain point where you know we break all these things down in our lives and we deconstruct them, and it can feel really chaotic or you know not homogenous. We can kind of feel like taken apart as you would, and and feeling like all these bits of our lives might be scattered across the table in front of us and feel like they're not connected. But that 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 deconstruction is really important, but it's also really important to see how they all fit back together. Absolutely. Um, and that I think that's part of like for me as a musician and as a as like the poet and wanderer, I guess, uh, that's been part of the joy of b breaking it down and being at peace with what you see, but also being at peace when some of those uh, things joined back together and some people are bewildered as to how you could have put them in there <laughs> all in the same basket. So, yeah, for sure. So how long? uh how long after you, you know, quote, uh, drank the proverbial Kool-Aid, uh, were you thrust into the limelight as a Christian musician? Uh, you know, I would tell you extraordinarily short time frame. Um, I, I think I was, I, I was 18 when I dove into evangelical Christianity. And then within a couple of years after that, I began process part of that experience for me in processing this new environment, you know, doing Bible studies, uh, what what is a spiritual life like? All of that started to get channeled into my music relatively quickly. I used music as a as almost like a spiritual medium um, and, a, and a mode for myself in kind of processing the spiritual life. And so as I did that, I, you know, you write, I wrote my music and then, of course, played it. And then all, you know, my church was very supportive. They allowed me to play, you know, you play, you write a song as a musician and then Kind of the inevitable outcome is that you perform it, which, which sounds really weird because performance for me is not quite the language I'm really comfortable with all the time. I mean, I, sometimes I perform, but the song is written and found and discovered to be shared. It wants to live. Hmm, yeah. I sound like a nut job whenever I talk about it. <laughs> no, but, not at all. 
but like, so as I wrote that stuff, you know, I would play it or share it in a Bible study or stuff with my friends and I think that would be the end of it. But it's like, oh no, you need to play this in church. Um, and as the outcome of that, like a, a couple of years in, I start, you know, going around a local, being asked to go around to local churches. I mean, college kids are from other places and where they're going to college, right? Mm -hmm. So they they would go home to their places and in other cities and other states and say, "Hey, you should come to a concert at my church." Or in the night in the late nineties, um, there was a lot of Christian coffee houses scattered around the country, kind of like you know these these spaces that were outside of the church where where young people were exploring their own faith kind of apart from the institution of the church. And that's the space it kind of took in that time. And I started playing concerts in that and it just took off within a couple of years of kind of discovering this way of life. I began, you know, being on a stage and being watched while I was in that journey of, of this new way of life. Um, and so not, but not only was it just me being watched is a way for me to kind of find a community with other people too to kind of have that spiritual journey. So yeah, I was probably like, uh, 20, 20 or 21 around that time and had only been kind of involved in this, this big, massive movement of church life and community for a couple of years. I'm still learning what it means to think theologically to, you know, to, I'm getting to know what, what and who God is if there is a personal relationship in some way that everybody talks about that I can be involved with, um, understanding what I mean inside of all of that. And I, you know, and it's just, I am now fully on the rails of having that individual experience, but also now being in front of people and, and as, as a result of sharing that experience and what I'd gone through. So, um, yeah, it was relatively short and I think probably, Gosh, I'm trying to remember when I started, when I got signed. I think it was around 1996, and I quote unquote became a card carrying Christian. I think in 1994. Yeah, so I think maybe I was signed within two or three years and started traveling nationally within three years of becoming a, like baby a baby Christian. Wow, it's pretty pretty crazy. Yeah. So during that time, where I'm sure your schedule was filled with, you know, interviews and concerts and recording and all that kind of stuff. Did, was it, even though you were around a lot of people, was it, was it isolating and difficult to kind of nurture any kind of faith at all? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, isolation was part of it. I mean, there's an, there was like a kind of a ramp up in that time. I, I realized like the, the time space was really short, like, you know, for like say from becoming a Christian to starting to work professionally as a Christian, I, like the timeline seems like a really rapid arc, but a lot of these things that I'll talk about were probably gradual in their discovery. It would probably take me seven or eight years to kind of get to the point where I'm, I was even able to articulate them as I do now. Hmm. Um, so like the isolation by the time I started traveling by myself, which probably like three or four years, that was part of it in terms of physical isolation, right? Lots of hours on the road by myself or doing, you know, concerts by myself, that kind of thing. But I also, part of that isolation for me was like when I first became a Christian, there were things that, that I took for granted. Like people said, now that you're here, this is what you have to do. You know, you have to pray, you have to do Bible study, you have to shake off the things of the world. You know, one trivial example might be that you know, after I became a Christian, I was told you have to stop listening to sec secular music. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you have to stop drinking. You have to stop swearing. You, you know, you have to stop being in the world and now being in this Christian world. And it was it was interesting because like that space was like there was supposed to be a hard and fast line and no evolution to kind of understood that. So I tried immediately to shape into that, and part of that isolation became for me was a theological one, a kind of somewhat putting up a spiritual firewall between the expectations that the church had of me while maintaining a desire to please my church, thinking that I'm pleasing God. And at the same time, having a space in and of myself to kind of figure out if this was something that I could do, wanted to do, or should do. Hmm. That's a very long process. But as a young Christian, that felt very isolating to do. It felt like an act of rebellion that I did on my own. Like, say, I would do a Bible study, read something, be told or directed to learn something about the Christian faith, um, 
uh, you know, one concept that comes to mind is uh, no sex outside of marriage. So in trying to understand that, I actually wanted to, under, like for me personally, I wanted to understand that. Uh, it wasn't that I ever wanted to rebel against it, but I needed to make sense of it in order to make it my own. Mm-hmm. As a, Instead of, you know, just being told what to do and an automaton that just does it. I, I needed that to have value in my life. It was a spiritual drive and a quest and a seriousness about my faith in God to be able to understand that. And what I discovered in that is when when that process was difficult to understand or perhaps I didn't agree with something, I found that process isolating because sometimes that space inside the traditional church and the people expecting me to believe that wouldn't allow me the space to doubt or be uncomfortable or to question and find that value in that those teachings myself. Um, and so I had to find a way in the midst of being a leader as I was growing as a leader inside of this space to kind of t- take time out for my own spiritual growth inside of it. So as we've discussed, you know, there's this ramp up. I, I become this, this representative of, of the Christian values, faith, traditions, and doctrines that I'm supposed to re- represent and I'm supposed to be good at it. Yet privately, I'm still trying to catch up and to see if I even know how to, to do that at all. And in the midst of all of that, was your your sexuality something that you were also dealing with as one of those, um, quote unquote, like rules or guidelines that you really were desperately trying to understand why? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. The answer to that's actually no, it wasn't at all. Case in point, you know, when, when I came into the this environment, one of the big things right off the bat, particularly as an 18-year-old girl who'd slept around quite a bit, actually, by the time I got there, you know, there was, you know, I was kind of talking about that firewall between the world and this new life in Christ that I was supposed to have. And so there was a lot of conversation and an understanding I had in this environment about, or thought I had understanding of the expectations of what sex was. And so, you know, no sex before marriage, no sex at all, be a good woman, get married, be a virgin when you married a man. Well, I'd already screwed that up. Um, so my focus was on, you know, redeeming myself as a, as a sexual person, like redeeming myself, you know, kind of in that concept, becoming pure again in some way, however that was supposed to occur. So in that process for me, I separated myself out. Like I stopped dating at all. I I don't know if I thought like time served as like a new virgin, like maybe I needed to spend 10 more years not sexually active to become a virgin again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but the result of that is I, I basically kind of shut down any concept of myself as a sexual being. Because one of the things that happened is I, I became really self-conscious and people were, I think also people that knew me and knew quote unquote my past were really concerned with any relationship that I might, I might build. So if I got to know, because they knew I'd, I'd had sex, right? So if I was too friendly with a guy, the caution would come down from the leaders and mentors in my life. Well, be careful. Don't have sex with that man. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Oh, <laughs> and then if I got too close to a girl, it'd be like, don't be careful. You're kind of butch. So don't have sex with that girl. <laughs> and so I'd be like, okay, this is too much for me. And I think I just shut that down. I just, as a leader in that space, what I decided to do was kind of concentrate on celibacy, I guess, for lack of a better way to say that. It wasn't like I made some contract to be quote unquote celibate. But what I did in looking back was I shut myself off, like I said, as a sexual being and a sexual person from all possibility of that ever being an issue. So the result of that is that any any concept that I would have had of being gay inside of that just wasn't an option for me. It just simply wasn't an option. And it wasn't until I was like 26 or 27 years old, I'm maturing as an adult. I'm, I would say I'm lonely. I'm it, and not about sex, but is that the, about that point of going, no, who am I as a person? Like what kind of relationships do I want to build? And I put myself back in that space. Um, I left the kind of entertainment industry and, and gay, I couldn't do that for me personally. I couldn't really do that while everyone was watching me. Mm-hmm. I needed, I felt like I needed to like have my own life for a minute and figure out who I was as a person, what kind of relationships I wanted to build, who, you know, what kind of na- relationships were going to nurture me as a human being to feel loved and accepted both spiritually and in my body in person. And it, so it wasn't until I was 26 or 27 years old that the light bulb went off. And then I went, oh, 
I'm pretty sure that I'm attracted to women. <laughs> and that as that as it kind of panned out to be the case, then looking back, all of a sudden I was like, oh, man, I probably would have known something of, along that lines when I was a teenager. It makes sense to me looking back and the types of relationships that I gravitated to, even though all of my sexual encounters to that point had been with men, that those sexual encounters weren't building relationships. They were that those were just encounters. It took me a long time. Like I said, I was in my late 20s to where I began to kind of theologically understand what I what I wanted to have happen and what God might want with me to know about sex and my person. And those years of celibacy allowed me to kind of understand and focus. And I wanted to learn what love was. It took me first to understand why it was or how it was that God could even possibly love me. Then I had to move through the zone of learning to love myself. And I think in getting to the point of learning to love myself, the way that God loves me, then I was able to begin to understand how I then might be able to be loved by other human beings and how I may love other human beings. It's really kind of right on with scripture, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And I wouldn't have said that at the time. And even now when I say it, sometimes I, I kind of cringe at feeling <laughs> like I'm, I'm living up to some kind of scripture. Yeah. <laughs> but the reality of that has proved itself theologically true to me. Like the nerd, the theological, the church kind of authoritative scripture part of me. I'm like, oh man, that, that's actually, it's been coherent and it's it's made a path for me that that took a long time. So yeah, I was in my late 20s before I, I even began to pull on that rope. And now, you know, I'm in my 40s learning how to describe that journey. I've already gone through it. It's already done and dusted. But now the part is like, figuring out intellectually what that means and and being able to talk about it and describe it. And it, it feels like a level of understanding that that was chaotic through the whole experience, but makes a, a lot more sense retrospectively. Hmm. And what was the, uh, I guess this is a kind of a two-part question. What, first of all, what was the, the kind of the catalyst that took you into your, your hiatus? And then going into that season of your life, was there no expectations at all at all? Or did you sort of have like a plan in the back of your mind? I'm going to be back. Or was there the thought of I'm done with this? I'm never going to go back to performing or doing music. Like what, what was your mindset in that moment? In that moment, it was absolutely a nuclear bomb went off. Like <laughs> it was just destruction. I needed to get out. Hmm. Um, so like that and was the you needed to get out. Was it more like just where you were personally or was it a combination of just the business side in general and all the stuff that goes into the, the Christian music industry? Yeah, um, it was all of that. Um, the big giant pic picture was at the time and emotionally felt like I just needed to set everything on fire and make it all explode and all go away. I did that. <laughs> and then after the bomb went off, I was like, okay, why did I just do that? <laughs> what were my, why, why was I so panicked and why did I need to do that? And so some of the issues we've already talked about, part of it was I, I had been so isolated and I needed to do it to survive. Like there was like this immediate eject handle that was a matter of life or death for me at the time. And so after I pulled the eject handle, I'm out of the burning cockpit <laughs> and landed <laughs> safely on the ground. Now I'm going, okay, what just happened? And now what do I need to do to get to safety? And in doing that, that was about you know, I started to realize that one of the reasons why I pulled that eject button was that personally, I had felt isolated. You know, I didn't have the kinds of relationships in my life that made me feel nurtured as a human being. I was lonely. And I was also theologically lonely, like intellectually lonely. Like I felt isolated from the church body. Like I didn't know how to connect with people of faith. So initially, and that's complicated. And like I had theological disagreements with the church at the time. I didn't know what to believe or how to believe. And so initially I thought, you know, screw it. I'm just not going to do this at all. Like I'm done. But after the dust settled, I, I wasn't done. I still had questions like, how did I get here? Was this, ex this epiphanal experience with the story of Jesus really as meaningful and life-changing as it appeared to be? Or did I just drink some Kool-Aid, right? Yeah. Did I just get caught up in the moment? Or is there really something significant here? It probably took me three years before I was really able to start finding my own voice. 
and, and start discovering those questions. And then, you know, probably another four or five years until I reemerged on the public scene back in, you know, when I came back and did another record, that's kind of like a mile marker of the work that I, I, that had led up to that point of going, no, you know, I, there's still something here that's of value in my spiritual process. Um, I traveled the world. I began reading, I began writing again. I began writing music and exploring my own faith or avoiding it as the case would be in something. So was, was there a time during that hiatus where you just kind of, you know, put down the proverbial guitar and didn't really engage music at all? Yeah, no, it, immediately. I mean, I, I did my oh, wow. last, I did my last show. Like I, when I decided I wanted to get out of CCM, I still had like a year's worth of contracts um, to fulfill. So I spent a year in utter hell um, between 2000 and the end of 2002, just kind of writing this out. Um, and so when I closed my, when I put my guitar in the guitar case, like I, I still remember that to this day, it was just locking a beast into a box and wanting to chuck it into the river and never see it again. Wow. Um, and I, I really thought that's what it was going to take to, to kind of be, be relieved from whatever burden I felt that I was experiencing at the time. So like to even look at my guitar, I would have burned them all, actually. I, I had tried to sell all my guitars. And it was actually my partner at the time wouldn't let me do it. And for years, maybe three, three or four years, I didn't even pick up a guitar. Like I just couldn't do it. It was too painful. It represented, it was so much a part of my spiritual process i had experienced such pain and alienation or perceived pain and alienation from my spiritual experience and and it, you know i had used music to process that all all that that picking up the guitar i couldn't do it until i was willing to open up that portion of my life again as well because i felt like the second that i started writing songs kind of like what i was saying earlier songs the songs that I end up writing always seem to inevitably lead me in front of people. And I didn't know if I was ready or even willing to do that. Cause in order to, in order to pick up and play, I had to be willing to accept that that was a possibility. It was yeah. just too terrifying for me, particularly knowing that I had arrived at a place that was now fully willing to embrace my, my spiritual questions, willing to offend <laughs> the traditional teachings that I had quote unquote grown up in knowing that my sexual orientation wasn't at all in question for me and that personally that I knew had theological problems with it and problems with uh, the traditional Christian teachings. I felt like I'd failed a lot of that and I didn't really know how I wanted to answer that, you know, inside of the Christian community. So it, that was a big hurdle to get over because all of those things were attached and came out every time I opened up the guitar case. Yeah. So what was it like when you, when you finally picked it up and did you find that it was, you know, like riding a bike or did it, because of the journey that you had in that moment of putting it down, were there changes in your creative process? Like, I, I'm sure that's hard to capture in words, but uh, it, it, as best you can, what, what was that moment like? The first thing I remember is like the physical process. Like, it's like, like riding the, the analogy of riding a bike is, is actually very apropos because I, I didn't forget how to play guitar. Like, it was amazing to me. Like, my hands just took over. But at the same time, like it, the guitar felt weird, like holding it. I just remember how weird it felt holding it and how much my hands hurt, like my fingers hurt by playing. And yet I couldn't not stop. I couldn't stop playing. Like I knew how to do it. So it was like, you know, getting on a bike after, you know, knowing that you could do the Tour de France and then 20 years later, getting on the bike and part of your body knowing and having this physical response, like, yeah, we can climb that mountain. But the, your muscles are actually saying you have to build up your skills. <laughs> like mm -hmm. you're not going to do it. You will die if you try and climb up that mountain. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of that, it was kind of that weird. I just remember that sensation so, so much. And yet I was so ready like intellectually to kind of start taking off. So my physical body kind of had to catch up with where like the, the spiritual part of me that had always used that medium and that mechanism to kind of begin spiritually processing. My physical body had to catch up with the fact that my, my intellectual and spiritual body was itself was actually ready to dive in. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, like I was ready to get back and I was like, I was actually doing that. I was actually starting to process the way I always had. I just, it took my physical body a little bit of time to be able to catch up. What does the creative process look like for you? Are you, do you start with the music and then bring the lyrics or does it, 
or does it change or how does it, what does that look like? I, they're really, the physical and the, the intellectual is really tied very much together. Like I, I can write apart from my guitar, but for me, there's something so inherently spiritual about doing all of it together. It's like I begin playing and it's, it sounds so nerdy. It's so weird or mystical, I guess. Like I begin playing and as the music starts playing, it's almost like it summons in the lyrics um, from this external space. And so that's, that's a process that I, I deeply enjoy that. Like for me, it's meditative, it's a spiritual process. And then it's kind of like you call, you ring the gong, <laughs> you make the music and the, and the muse comes and delivers this word to you. <laughs> <laughs> and I begin to write it down. Like I find it and, dis- and discover it. And that, that to me is my favorite way. And it's probably predominantly the way that I write. But, you know, to be a little bit more like realistic <laughs> and less mystical. Well, no, that's I mean, good. We, we're firm believers of the, the, the mysticism <laughs> of the creative process here. So um, we get that. Maybe, yeah. But there's also a skill set that goes with it. You For know? Sure. I mean, I, I can say, listen, I, I do better now at going, hey, what do I want to write about? And I can think about that a lot before I sit down to write. Um, I do. I find that I've done that a lot more. It's a, a level of mastery. I don't feel like I had early on in my career. Like now, if I say, hey, I'm, I, I really do kind of want to sit down and like I did with this record, I, I really wanted to sit down and, and contemplate what love is about and the components of love and what that looks like. And what does that mean? When we talk about love. What do we do? How do we fulfill it? I, I, all those things were swirling around in my head before I sat down and started writing for this new record. So that's something that I didn't do 20 years ago. It's something I do now um, and kind of conjure that up and think in outlines and word clouds. And, you know, just you just start to see the whiteboard creative process in my head before I start. Um, And then I can start piecing that together if the inspiration in some way is failing me. Um, I, I can start crafting that together with a level of mastery that I didn't have 20 years ago. Um, which is, is, is kind of an interesting thing. Um, and I can in some ways now because of that, write apart from it. But I, I tend to grab like the music that I tend to enjoy and I really love and that moves me and the things that end up going on records and the things that I want to perform are usually the things that I had a personal experience with when I'm, when I'm playing it in that fluid moment, having those moments of epiphany, like almost every song that's ended up on a record, like the turning point when I go, oh, this song that I'm writing right now is good. Like it makes me cry, whether it's a rocker or like some emotional thing. There's always a point in it where it's just like this this moment where this song knows it's going to be a song. And I know that I've discovered it and I just weep. That's amazing. <laughs> I, it's, it's so exciting. I'm like, Oh, okay. And then it, it drives me. There's something there. There's a nugget that I've uncovered that I want to explore. Um, that doesn't tend to happen when I write away, when I write away from my guitar, I'm usually thinking, here's a concept I want to get across. How am I going to do it? And it's so intellectual sometimes I have a hard time marrying the spiritual side of it, the mystic side of it that I want to have embedded in the music. Hmm. So from, from kind of stepping back into that creative process, what was it, I guess, conversely, what was it like when you stepped back into the performance mode of that, when you first got onto a stage after you've re-picked up your guitar and you started writing again? Yeah. Uh, again, the first thing I think of is the physicality of it. Um, I was back and performing within like maybe a couple of years before, after I'd kind of started writing again. And I still physically, like my hands still hurt. Like I still had difficulty remembering all the chords and all the lyrics and being on stage. I mean, when you break it down, there's a lot going on in a solo performance. I mean, you're, you're dealing with your own adrenaline push. I did a show. My first show I did back in the States was at a hotel cafe in Los Angeles and the room was packed and it was sweaty and it was hot. And my body remembers how to do all this, but I'm out of shape. My hands hurt. I can barely, you know, I don't even know how to sing full on. Like I know how to sing full on. I don't know how not to sing full on, but I physically was like, Oh my God, I don't even know if, if I can sing for half an hour physically, I don't know if my hands can handle playing for half an hour physically. And then my leg is just shaking like mad. Like I could barely stand up. I had jelly legs and I had no idea what to do. Cause I'm, 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 I'm not nervous about being in front of people, but it's just this huge swarm of physical things going on. 
And then I want to play these songs. Like I, I, I want to passionately perform it. Like they're dying to get out. It's like all this chaos. <laughs> um, so it was, it was physically grueling for about another two years after I started performing again to feel like I, like the physical factor wasn't part of it. And then that there's emotional stuff to it too, because, you know, I'm afraid of getting up there and not being able to perform physically very well. Like if my voice cracks or what if I blow out my vocals and I'm not able to sing tomorrow and I've got four more shows and it becomes like levels of anxiety that I kind of had to deal with. But then on top of that, you had all the wild things that were happening because of my coming out, because of my coming back, all of those are rolled into one. It was insane. I got through it. I don't know how, <laughs> but the part that I relied to relied on and was really grateful for is like the muscle memory, the embodiment of it. I mean, these are things that I do without anyone watching. I will play. I will write. I have my spiritual journey and this is one of the ways that I process it. So through all of that intensity, I had to just keep reminding myself that this place where it leads me, this, this unusually chaotic public space is a fruit of that, is something that I had the ability to say yes or no to embracing. And that really made a big difference between the anxieties and the willingness I had to accept it. Um, but I also understood that this was still my own playing of guitar, the, the writing of music, it was still mine. It was up to me to be able to decide whether I would or would not do it. It wasn't an obligation for me to do it, but somehow that, that realization helped transform how I took on the pressures and the responsibilities that w went with it. That the, the kinds of responsibilities that I felt led to an implosion before, um, you know, like I said, like we talked about in and how it was so fast between becoming a person of faith and mailed, melding my spiritual process into this career. Um, those responsibilities overwhelmed me at a certain point. I didn't know that I'd actually taken those on. I didn't know that I'd accepted those in any respect. And this time through, I felt I, I it was like a reckoning point for me. And it's kind of like one of those mile markers that made it career 2.0 in that regard is that I was somehow able now to say yes I'm willing to be in this public space. I'm willing to follow where this leads. And there are times that I will do that and times that I won't. But I knew a little bit more about what those boundaries looked like and where I could participate and to know myself a little bit better, to, you know, to know whether or not I could or I couldn't um, test those boundaries, um, you know, when I had the energy to do it and when when I didn't, and to know the wisdom of, of being able to choose the right moment and time and place to do all that stuff. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, not only obviously um, coming out uh, and having a new album and all the stuff that went with that, there also seems to be like a big uh, societal shift in the middle of that, where you started your career with, you know, virtually no social media or internet. And then when you come back, it's kind of the beginning of the height of all of that. And was that how how did that shape the public life? And was there anything about that dynamic of kind of like public transparency that was a little more uh, jarring for you coming back into that space? Oh, bloody hell was it jarring. <laughs> <laughs> like, in some way, like, I don't know how better to describe it, except for I felt like Rip Van Winkle. I mean, there, <laughs> the public space had dr so dramatically changed. I mean, I still thought MySpace was a thing. I missed, <laughs> I missed MySpace. I didn't, you know, people are like, oh, when you get back and going, you need to engage in MySpace. I opened up a MySpace account and that was already dead. I mean, I felt like a TV character old lady. What's this MySpace? What's this <laughs> Facebook? Twitter? What the hell's a Twitter? And like the whole concept of communicating had radically shifted. And I think in some ways for the, for the good, the isolation that I talked about before was like almost as a performer was like the rules were me on a stage and you in the audience. And what social media has done has made that a, an ongoing conversation. In some ways, it's kind of almost erased this barrier between the, the proscenium of the stage and the audience because we're talking to each other all of the time now. You know, like before you might have to write a fan letter or get on some static forum. At the time I left in 2002, forums were a thing. That, that was about the, the, mass, the mass of it. Now it's much more fluid. We have Facebook. It's ongoing. Instagram. I'm sending pictures out. 
I'm talking to people. I have relationships with people that come to shows that I know them by name. They know me by name. We have a rapport. Like we're friends and in as much a way as, you know, we have these kind of peripheral friends in our life. So I had, I had to get to know that while still, you know, as a public person, that was a little bit of a hurdle for me to get over. Cause I'm like, Whoa, I don't know if I want you in my house. Like I was fearful of those relationships, particularly in the Christian environment, because I knew that I failed so many people, so many ways. I knew people disagreed with me. Right. And so like, that's a bad side of social media. Now, like you do something Everybody has a stinking opinion on it yeah. like, immediately. I, we, we all experience this now. I don't think you have to be like in a public position or a celebrity position to experience it because I think now what social media does is we all experience it, right? You put a Facebook page, you go, oh my gosh, I love Jennifer Knapp. And all of a sudden you get it from left and right. Yay, support gay people. And the other people are like, how could you do this? You support, you know, you're supporting somebody who should be going to hell. Like you get all of that showing up on your Facebook page. I get that only multiplied by the thousands. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it's still the same thing. It, it becomes like the, the numbers of it to me don't, it, are incomprehensible. Like the, the action is still the same. All of a sudden now we're all party to this judgment and this assessment of knowing who we are, what we want to say, what's my message, what's my identity. So in some ways it's really good because we have ways of communing to do that, communing, sharing with other people, uh, avenues of being able to express that, avenues of being able to connect with other people and even develop our own story. But at the same time, you also have to weather the storm of opinion and controversy. And I think people are now learning it's really hard to do in a public space. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, a space that you have to go back to and know in your own quiet spaces and in your own, own room, I think, before you post. Hmm. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's a little bit of that process. And I, and I think that's part of a, narr- a, a, a meta-narrative almost of what... I've been able to kind of appreciate, um, with my audience now is I think that I feel like a lot of the people that I converse with now in as, as a public artist understand that, like, it's really hard to describe that. Some of us need identity. Some of us are trying to shake it off. And, and as we learn to discover ourselves, process our spiritual journeys, it's really hard to do while people are watching. We have to be really mindful and deliberate about how we are going to do that, how we are going to to preserve the space for us to do that and to do that well and not give up. And that's part of the narrative for me that I'm, I've in this quote unquote career 2.0, I'm really enjoying championing. I, I know what that process is like. I know what it means to have to compete with these external forces and how important it is to balance out that solitude um, that's required. And also the requirement that it does in bringing you back into those spaces. I mean, we can't live in isolation alone because there's a, a Henry Nowen talks about it for you reading nerds out there. Um, there's one of my favorite and, and most healing, uh, essays I ever read was Harry Nowen's book, uh, Reach, reaching out. And he, he talks a lot about the space of, of loneliness and solitude and that there's a difference between the two. When our time away and our own self-care and nurturing our own voice and our own spiritual process, and if you if you want to talk about this in a in a in a theological context and getting to know God, if if we're not having those alone times there, or we have those alone times there and we need that preserved and we need to do that work, but it can also become very isolating. We need to allow that to grow in a safe space because when that blooms in its right way, its inevitable outcome is it actually does draw you back into community. What feels like loneliness to begin with, isolation, loneliness, lostness, wandering, doubt, what is what is in that space is an indicator to me that that's when we need to go out and somewhat embrace that. But that isolation and that loneliness can bloom into solitude. Um, learning the skills that it takes to be able to to do that in that quiet place, do it and be at peace with that. Let that part of ourselves and that self, spiritual self care bloom in that solitude, and then it leads us out into the reaching out, which I th- I think is a beautiful thing. It was n- having that knowledge for me was probably one of the things that keeps me going today. I'm not sure I would have survived all of this kind of coming back um, if I didn't 
know and trust in that process. It's, it's proved itself to be very reliable. And even now, like I can, I can take those moments of going, putting myself in, in isolation a bit and, and being able to go, Oh, I, I need to self care now. I need to go not lose, not to be too distant from my own voice, get that taken care of, rest up. And we all go to sleep every night. <laughs> you have to reboot. And do you find that you're you're more driven to take those moments of self care now that you're um you know in addition to being a musician and a performer uh now with the the Inside Out Faith organization being more of an advocate and uh feeling like you're more connected with people in a place of of struggle and hurt and understanding that you know you're providing something something different and for some people something uh deeper in in the the work that you're doing through that organization yeah well i i think you know the long arc of my participation in the public space is i i really do have a care for people and an empathy for the spiritual process that we go through and i think i, I i'm drawn to it which is fortunate like i want to do it it's out there it's it's fruit it's a it's, it's a happening that I want to be a part of. And I'm, I'm like drawn to it like a moth to a flame. Um, the challenge for me has been to figure out, like, what do I do when that passion to do it? Because when I do it, I dive in. Like, I, I go to, I do a show now. I may play for an hour and a half. And then, I mean, you know, I may be on stage for an hour and a half. Um, but there's also energy that is compelled. Like, there's energy that has, like, been taken from my body and getting there. I've had to write music. I've had to follow that. I've had to, you know, that's required energy of me. And then I've gotten on stage and then I've done that energy. And then after that show on any given day, I even talk for another hour and a half to two hours after a show. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so the, the Inside Out Faith Organization added like a, a speaking part to your concerts and performances? Well, right. And so then you add, then you add the advocacy that I've done on behalf of the LGBT community um, and even for my own investment in it. That's its own energy, right? To go out into that public space, yes, I am a musician, but now there's this issue that comes with me that takes time, that affects me personally, that draws me as seeing it as a mode of work. Now, like it's another thing that I want to give my energy into. So do, am I prepared to give that energy and do I have enough? These are all like new energy at like requirements that I have to figure out how to manage. And so knowing how to manage that a little bit more has been half the battle going, yes, I want to tap into that. So I'm having to figure out how to kind of manage that space because it can be exhausting. I, what I think I used to do is just give so passionately, former youth pastor, you're going to know what this means. <laughs> you, you give so passionately in that moment. You've got nothing left. And guess what? Your calling is still there the next day <laughs> and you have to do it again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You'll still be compelled, but do you have enough energy to do it? And with the ongoing needs that you see, the things that give you passion, like the people that I want to, like, I want to play music because it's fun. It's great. And I also see people that are drawn to that music that have needs and ways that I can serve and, and be empathetic with and just be alongside with that requires its own level of energy. And so having to kind of figure out how to continually expend energy and refuel and expend again and do this process over and over again while maintaining a relevancy like not just getting blind to what's going on. Like you have to have enough energy in any given day to see what's happening and assess what's going on and say, yes, I'm going to spend it here. Not just wildly throwing it, you know, like, like making it rain. Like you're, you know, like you're in a stripper club with $1 bills. Like, <laughs> it's all, you know, it's, it's, it's a horrible metaphor, but that's kind of what it is. Are you wildly just making it rain with your time and your vow, like each of us with our incredible skills that we have to passionately give what we've learned and share that. For me, the isolation begins when we've expended so much. We say, I don't have enough for the rest of the world because I don't have enough for myself. It's a valuable thing to consider. You know, if you don't have enough for yourself, you don't have enough for the rest of the world. And yet that doesn't, for most of us, eliminate the calling. So you just begin to get stretched. We can be stretched just saying, yeah, I see that thing out. Now we feel irresponsible because we see ways that we can connect. And that we can't because we don't know how we've taken care of that energy of ourselves. I don't know if I, I mean, all that makes sense, but yeah, no, absolutely, I hundred percent agree. That's uh... I could go on and on and on <laughs> and on about my philosophy in this, but I will try and be as brief as I can. <laughs>
<laughs> no, don't worry about it. Uh, and, and, and vice versa. I have so many questions and so, so many things I'd like to talk to you about. But I definitely, you know, uh, before we kind of end our time here, I'd like to talk about uh, your new album. Um, I've been a personal fan for a long time. And, uh, even during your hiatus, I would occasionally check Wikipedia or do a name search to find out, Hey, was she coming out with anything? Cause I, you know, from a fan's perspective, I had no idea, uh, what was well, happening. That's really nice. I'm glad you were Google searching for music and not Google searching for obituaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. I was, I was. And then when, when, uh, you know, you came out with your new album and then, you know, you literally came out there, there was this, um, this intensity that I really liked about uh, letting go your album that you came out with oh, for, for uh, part of 2.0 career and uh, specifically your, your song inside. I love that song and that, that grittiness and it kind of set this different tone, but then listening to your, your most recent album, there's this uh, I don't want to say there's still, there's still that edginess that, that just seems to be a part of who you are, but there's this uh, maturity in in the songs and it has this this very different feel describe the new album from your perspective and and how it may be different or in the same vein as as stuff that you've done before yeah you know it's actually really i don't know cool it feels really good that you like recognize the same arc it's it's affirming to me in a weird way (laughs) but but you know, not in an egotistical way, but going, I've seen this arc of myself this way and if others see it that way then maybe i'm not wrong about myself um (laughs) Uh, the, like the arc you're describing is, yeah, it's pretty much the way I, I feel like at this point I'd say it, like the energy that's been driving it, like, I can't remember the word you said about letting go, but there was like, yeah, a lot of energy in it. Um, and a lot of F you, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but like, I'm also compassionate. Like, I, I don't want to just like burn my bridges. I want to like look at my problem and then like conquer it <laughs> almost. And I think letting go is kind of part of that. And that, that energy has traveled through when I look back, that energy has traveled through everything that I do, um, even to this point where this this record, I'm surprised at how empathetic and nurturing and soft it seems without never having lost that energy um, that still drives the writing of it. Um, even for like in a mini scope, like between letting go and uh, this new record, Love Comes Back Around, it, part of that process for me has been going the hardships of life and love, when you embrace them and take them on, develop into something extraordinarily beautiful. And at least they have for me. And and in writing that down, with I, I think that was part of the process of this. When, I, like I, and I said earlier, like when I sat down to write this record, my focus was on love. What did it mean? Particularly, I think in scope of the last five or six years and my own coming out journey and the questions that people have had about, you know, what love is, oftentimes for me has been colored by others with, you know, this idea of my sexual orientation, which has had nothing to do with it. In fact, for me, really, like I've had to explore what love really is personally, and then I've been willing to share it um, in a public space. And and for me, that's a very faith informed journey. I have not gotten over being embarrassed about this, but uh, the first thing I asked myself when I said, okay, well, I'm going to write about love. I really want to write about it. It's fueled me. That's why I'm still alive. That's why I'm still here. It's the energy that fuels all of this, all the anger, all the F you, all the frustration of that is compelled by this force that I discovered when I was 18 years old and going, wow, I'm a redeemable, valuable human being to God. Like that's the, the pee under the mattress of all of this. I feel it every day. So what does that mean? We call it love. What does that mean? And so I'm like, ah, oh, shit. I have to go back to love is patient. Love is kind. It keeps no records of wrong. It does not boast. And I'm like, holy cow. I want to make fun of this text. I don't want to use it. I don't want to see it, but it's so true. It is the thing that has made life more beautiful, more grand, not easier, <laughs> but more relaxed. That energy is still there. And I think it shows up musically in this record, but I'm also grateful that, uh, you know, it's helped me kind of put to words some of the things for me that have led me to that comfort. Like there's a song on the record called perfect pardon. And that song's all about hard work. I mean, I think sometimes we imagine that grace happens in this vacuum that you just stand there and it happens to you. Oftentimes, like when we're given that grace by another person in a spiritual grace with God, you have to defend that grace. Life and people and external factors are constantly trying to remind you and rip that grace away from you. 
So once you see it, like it becomes its own new battle and journey. And so Perfect Pardon's a bit about that. For me, like the highlight of it was kind of tripping into this song called Love Love Comes Back Around, which is the title of the record. And it is a song about a wedding and a relationship between two people and their union, the metaphor of the ring and all that kind of stuff. But in a larger look, what that is kind of when I step back at that and looked at it when it's on, and as I've talked this summer through the concerts that we've done and and gone out and perform it, one of the realizations is that is that what love does in its kind of grand, glorious feat is that it binds us together. You know, for, for every person that I've ever, and I didn't mean to do this, but like as a gay person, I've heard a lot of people, a lot of people have come up to me and said to me, you know, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm kicking you out of the church because I love you. I'm breaking these in CDs in front of your face because I love you. I'm telling congregations of people that you're going to hell because I love you and I hmm. love them. You know, these kinds of things. And there are a thousand other examples, right? Mm-hmm. That, that people have said this, you know, I, I hit you because I love you. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. What What I've discovered is that, or what I will stand by is that love actually doesn't tear us apart. It doesn't break. It unites. It builds. It takes those deconstructed pieces that we have and puts them together. For me, in the way only God can, and saying, you know, you break all those pieces apart, somebody on Twitter is going to tear them all up. Somebody's going to find something wrong with each one of those things. But look at this. Watch me. And those get all reconstructed and put you back together. And lo and behold, there's a beautiful you. There's the unique you (laughs) filled and beautifully and wonderfully created. And and to me, that's, I don't know, like it blows my mind. Like if I'd sat down and said, oh, I'm going to write this bullshit. Like, (laughs) I I don't know that it's a discovery and you don't discover it until you, you know, it's a discovery that I wouldn't have had if I didn't brave the fear that it took to pick up and go to that space where I discover those things. And for me, that, that begins with music. Hmm. Well, the, the new album definitely really, at least my first taking of it really reflects this kind of not end point of a journey, but definitely feels like there's been this long road leading to this one spot. And it has that, that sense to it. So I've really, really enjoyed it. Uh, how is your, uh, how is your relationship with your 1.0 material? Do you do you still perform it? Is that was there a time where you didn't? If you do now, yeah. I, well, initially I didn't. I wanted to burn it. Um, I didn't want to play it at all, and I've softened up on that. I, like I've reconnected with some of that 1.0 material, as you so aptly <laughs> call it. The theological factors are really important for me because they're so tied in the language of the church. If I connect intellectually, theologically, and feel like it is something that I'm willing to be responsible for passing on um, in a in a faith based leadership context, then I'm more than happy to play it. Um, I don't necessarily connect that way; like it's not an exercise for me as much anymore in performing it because I'm on to other things. But there's a lot of it that I will play and still find a lot of enjoyment in playing. If that doesn't sound contradictory, no, not at all. And there's there's other things that that there are other songs, there are pieces and bits and parts and songs that I just I really have a hard time going back and play it, playing, which is which is a little bit rough because for some people that's you know every song enters at some point in the soundtrack of somebody's lives, and so I don't really want to be an impediment and get in the way of that. So there are times where I've learned to share it, but um, there are songs that regularly make it into my set list that help the narrative, and I, I really enjoy it. And if they're pertinent for the moment, I'll gladly play it. But sometimes, like somebody will yell a song out in the middle of the show, and I'm like, "Oh dear God, are you kidding me? Like, don't make me play that." Um, is is there one in particular, or would you rather not not share? No, I, I don't mind. Uh, you know, th- there are two songs from the th- well. There's three songs, but um, like "Refine Me" is one a song it's from my very first record and uh faithful to me and i i don't play them both for two different reasons but they're both kind of intimate like they like i'll sing faithful to me even like in my own life like while i'm walking around but it's become so intimate for me that i don't really want to share it on a mic anymore it's Hmm. kind of like where i said yeah that's mine and occasionally when my mom's in a show she'll yell it out and i just can't deny her (laughs) so i'll do it but she's about the only one that can compel me to perform that song live 
And then Refine Me is just, I didn't write it. You know, I didn't write that song. It was a, a I didn't even co-write it. So for me, like I, I've been able to kind of move on from that. It's a type of process that like even from the, the day that I, I recorded that song, like I don't process that politely. I mean, the song is, you know, Lord, come with the fire, burn my desires, refine me. It's so nice. And I just don't process that way. I'm like, no, what the hell's going on, man? Like, let's sort this out. <laughs> like I arm wrestle. I am, I am at the foot of Jacob's ladder. <laughs> that is what I do. And so for me to perform that song feels in- disingenuous. Mm. But then, then there's another song where like, uh, that I feel like a lot of people had confusion from the third record, uh, The Way I Am, which actually the title song for that, um, The Way I Am is a song in the chorus. It says, it's better off this way to be deaf, dumb and lame than to be the way I am. And it's, you know, it's taking, you know, it's taken from Jesus's word, you know, if your eye sense against you, pluck it out. If your tongue sense it again, you know, it's, it's kind of this, this satirical take in the music for me. It's like, oh yeah, I'd be just nothing. Like I'm this hot mess of a human being that if I literally cut off every part of me and my nature that does ill, then there'd be nothing left of me. And I did it. I wrote it and I I mean it satirically, but there are some people in the journey uh, there. I've actually heard quite a few people have talked about how that song for them as gay people inside of the church that was marginalizing them and telling them they had to be something different was a song that they had used to kind of like, iron hammer and anvil themselves into the straight experience Hmm. and you know that i'm supposed to be and i'm supposed to cut off all of these parts of who i am in my nature and and i think it's been misinterpreted so much as as not seeing it for that metaphorical like see this is what happens to you if you do this there'll be nothing left of you so learn from this and move on it's been too damaging i think i feel like until i get a grasp of that and i love that song I, i i'll stand by it but there's something about it that if it's not in the right place and I don't trust that people can see it that way, I'm really res- reticent to play it in public. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely. I could see that. That, that must be uh, very difficult to, to have people take it that way and, and see the result of something that you intended, you know, obviously the opposite of. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, Hippoc- Hippocratic oath. I mean, I, I want to do no harm. Yeah. What I'm doing. And I think that it's kind of the, a bit of the legacy of having gone through the, the Christian music experience. I've seen like marketed faith. You know, you have to be, everybody should want to be like this. You know, you're supposed to be like everybody else and buy, like, it's like, it's something that you can buy into or a trend. The, the knowing part of our journeys is, is going to be shaped a little bit different from us. And the best way I know how to describe is like, there's a pressure sometimes as a woman, I feel to be a woman when I look at all the marketing and advertisement. I mean, my legs don't look anything like that. My boobs are not like that. I'm 40 pounds overweight compared to that stick girl. Like, what is this? I don't know how to live up to that. And I'll never look like that. I'll never even feel like that, even if I did look like that. So how am I going to live up to that? And how do I continue to understand the value of who I am as a woman inside of all of that? And it's kind of the same way with the Christian experience. And we're told that we're, you know, a Christian looks like this and a Christian does this, does all of these things, believes all these things. And we're not always like that. We don't look like the, the pinup model of what this is supposed to be, and nor do we always feel like that. And so that's the challenge of persisting in our faith of going, no, come on. Like, we're not going to all look the same. We're different bodies. We're unique. We're, we're all having this different experience. But in that, as, as I become a manufacturer in some sense of that story, I mean, I'm having to create the art, the visual for it. So how do I, you know, how do I proceed and, and feed into that in a meaningful, spiritually responsible way without, you know, like basically first trying to do no harm. Uh, I want to feed something that's good. And there are ways, I think, in the the CCM experience that I learned from that that were really troubling to me that that were were very difficult. And now I feel like in this concept, uh, a little bit more, I don't know if I'm better at it. I still think there's a danger when you're in that space of doing exactly that. This is what a gay Christian looks like. Oh, please tell me. (laughs) Let's try not to do that. But now I have the freedom to be able to say that specifically, audibly and clearly. This is one version of it. What is your version? Who are you? Write a different story. Tell that. And that's a luxury that I didn't feel like I had in Career 1.0. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, Thank you so much for uh, sharing with us today. Uh, Is there anything that you'd like to to plug or direct people to in in your work 
outside of just your music? Well, yeah, you know, obviously there's a the music. It's jenniferknapp.com and all the Twitter and Instagram things that come attached to it. I mean, if you really want to know what's going on in my life, the, the best way to do it is just to sign up on the mailing list. I know that sounds so campy and old school, but we really do try and let you know strategically and not bug you and pester you. So that's one way to do it. And all the peripherals are kind of attached to that. But yeah, it's important. I'm, I'm doing... Um, I'm doing advocacy work for the LGBT face side and a lot of the thing, you know, a lot of the ways that we spoke and talked about today, if, if you want to engage in that part of what I can offer or be a source of um, insideoutfaith.org is a really great place to do that. There's a lot going on in those spaces and particularly for inside out faith, if there's a, a way to be able to financially support that as well as we kind of build up that foundation. Kind of one of, one of the challenges I would say is in the communities, in the faith-based communities that do want to ad- advocate for LGBT faith inclusion, oftentimes getting the people that can contribute to that conversation and that language are external from their localized areas. You know, in a small community for churches that want to show their support to the LGBT community, aren't always able to get public figures from inside that local community to be able to speak. They're just one, there aren't a lot always available, but also two, that People inside of their local communities aren't always willing to risk coming out where they live. So having external people like me to be able to come into those churches, show what this is like, bring that conversation into this new environment is really helpful. And so what happens is we want to make sure that this financial burden of being able to do that isn't on the churches themselves. If I had my way about it, I go to every church that that simply asked me to be there and just go and hang out and do the work that you know, I'm supposed to be doing. But sometimes we have the financial impediment of not being able to do that. Um, so inside, if you're looking for things like that, um, insideoutfaith.org is one of those. And as we begin to develop and grow, that's one of my hopes with that, that foundation is to be able to kind of create those unifying resources. We want to be able to find ways of connecting um, those LGBT faith advocacy resources to to one another, not just um, as they stand isolated in their own communities. For sure. We'll make sure we put all of those links in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 102. And uh, yeah, we'd love to have you back sometime and maybe even talk more about uh, your advocacy work specifically with Inside Out Faith and uh, go into greater detail on, on the work that's done there and, and the stories that you have of encouragement. Yeah, we, that, that could be a whole hour in and of itself. I'm so sure. Anytime. I'd appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you so much for for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I I enjoyed it too. And for everyone listening, if you would like to check out all of Jennifer Knapp's work, make sure you check the show notes at irenacast.com slash 102, or you can just go directly to Jennifer Knapp's website, jenniferknapp.com, and that'll do it for us this week. So we will leave you with a little taste of Jennifer Knapp's music as we close the show. 